I hope you caught that scene in the video where there is a wall of books in the back of the room and a foosball table. That's how we roll in Sovereign Grace. <laughs> we, we study hard, we're serious, and we rest, <laughs> even when you're being trained. So that's so cool. Uh, if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn in it to uh, the letter of Hebrews. We're also going to have the text on the screen, so if you don't have one, that's, that's fine. It'll work. We're starting a new sermon series today. Um, say a couple things about the letter of Hebrews. First of all, we don't actually know who wrote it. People have made guesses about that, but it became part of the canon of Scripture because of its apostolic nature. It reads like the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ring of truth, and I noticed over the last year how much I've quoted from this book, which was partly why I wanted to actually study the book, <clears throat> you know, together. There is a lesson in that, by the way, a lesson in the anonymous nature of Hebrews. It's a reminder that our best works might be known only to God. <laughs> we have to be okay with not getting credit for the best things that we do. <laughs> it's pretty hard to like do something great and not tell somebody about it. But we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. You know, God inspired it. God gave them that. And uh, we'll find out. It'll be fun to find out, like, who did that? Who did you use to do that? Um, but we just have to be content that God knows what we've done and there's reward for it. So uh, some more overview about this letter and why it's relevant. The letter was written to first century Jewish converts to Christianity, which is why it's titled The Letter to the Hebrews. That means Christians of a Hebrew or a Jewish background. A lot of Old Testament material is referenced. It's assumed that the readers would know what he's talking about when he goes into the whole sacrificial system and a bunch of Old Testament imagery. It's also assumed that they've professed faith in Christ. Uh, in chapter 12, 24, it says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So we're talking about first century Christians from a Jewish or Hebrew background. Now, why was the letter written? The author calls it in 13.22, my word of exhortation, meaning a word of some urgency, a heartfelt concern for the well-being of another person. Depending on the situation, a word of exhortation can either be for comfort and consolation and encouragement, or it could be a sober warning depending on the circumstance. And the letter to the Hebrews has both. The situation that warranted a word of exhortation is this. These converts to Christianity were starting to waver in their commitment to Jesus Christ and to the faith. Every warning in the letter, and there are six of them, is about the consequences of growing distant from Christ losing the faith, abandoning the hope that is the gospel. Why were they at risk of drifting away from Christ and the gospel? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, you know that there is a whole lot working against your wholehearted and bold exercise of your faith. You know that. 
There's the allure of the world and what it has to offer. In 3.13, the writer warns of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin, which is walking away from God's will for something that you think is better, that can seem like the path to real fulfillment. And so that's always one reason why we might waver from the faith. There's also the pull of trusting in our good works. There's a natural heart inclination to thinking that I can be right with God by doing the right things. And so these converts to Judaism who had come out of a a whole life of thinking that if I obey God's law and if I atone for my sin through sacrifice, then I'm okay with God. And Jesus blows that all up. And so they have this temptation to kind of go back to that. That's what I'm familiar with. That's what feels right to me. But maybe the biggest issue facing these first century Christians was that following Jesus was costing them something. In 10.33 and 34, the writer says, they were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And that at one time, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So they were suffering something for Jesus. They were being persecuted. They were being opposed at some level, and that hurt. That was painful. And that would tempt them to question, is it really worth it for me to identify with Jesus Christ given what I'm going to have to suffer because of that? That's why they were wavering. So the letter was written to those believers to help them not waver and to show them and show us that following Jesus is totally worth it no matter what it costs. You don't want to give yourself over to sin. You don't want to trust in your self-atonement. You don't want to be afraid of the cost. Jesus is greater than everything. That's the main point of the letter to the Hebrews. It puts solid ground under our feet to endure and to thrive in following Jesus. It enables us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering which is from 10.23. So I'm eager for us to endure. I'm eager for us to thrive. I'm eager for us to be joyful in following the Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. And this letter will do that for us if we really get into it and embrace it and believe what this writer, what God, the the ultimate author, is saying to us. And we're going to do that for about 25 Sundays, give or take. That's how long it'll take to get through this. We are going to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's from 12.2. So let's start with the introduction to the letter. We'll read chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and then I'll pray. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Well, the Lord, we need uh, your help here to see what the writer saw, what you inspired him and opened his eyes to see. We want solid ground under our feet. We want to know the cost is worth it. We don't want to be distracted and torn away and all these other different things that are going to just wreck us. We want life. And so, Lord, show us again. Show us again the beauty, the excellence, the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, let's start, let's start with an observation from this passage. The, the observation is this. God has spoken to us. God has spoken to us. It assumes the existence of God. God spoke to our fathers. It assumes that God is a communicating God. God has said something. God has communicated in words to us. The writer says, In the past, He spoke to us through the prophets. He spoke to our fathers. That's the the descend the 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 uh, physical ancestors of Israel that's the the spiritual ancestors of Christians he said god spoke to our fathers through the prophets prophets like moses isaiah jeremiah and others they were messengers that were communicating what god wanted us to know So to Moses, God revealed the history of the world in Genesis. (laughs) From creation to how creation was broken by man's sin to how he would start to undo all of that through a people that he would call to himself, the people of Israel. He gave Moses all that, wrote it down in the first five books. To Isaiah, to Jeremiah, and to others, God, God was calling his people back to faithfulness, to him because they had strayed, they had gone all over the place and, and left their God who called them. And so he's calling them back to himself. And he's also sprinkling promises within all of these warnings, promises of a, of a Savior to come, of a, of a healed brokenness, of the world fixed. All of that was given to the prophets to say to our ancestors, but they weren't their own messages. They, they were just delivering the message. They were the FedEx people for God. Here, tell them this. They didn't have their own authority within them to say anything worth hearing, but they were bringing God's very words to us. That's how God spoke long ago. But he didn't stop speaking long ago. The writer says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and that son is identified in chapter 2 by the name Jesus. The last days in Scripture re- refers to the last chapter of the story of this world. It's from Jesus' first coming to his return. That's last days. We live in the last days. We live in the days where God is speaking to us most clearly, most ultimately, through His Son, through the one who walked on the earth, through God who walked on the earth in the form of a human. 
God has spoken to us by His Son. That's, that's the first thing we need to see. It's like Jesus is God's final word. <clears throat> not final in the sense that God's not speaking anymore, anything anymore. God is not like the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. Bill Waterston, Waterson, he created the best comic that ever existed for 10 years. And it was at the height of popularity in 10 years. And then he quit. He walked away from it. And he never was public again. God didn't do that <laughs> with Jesus. God did present his ultimate word, his ultimate work. Jesus Christ in the flesh. He still speaks to us by the leading of the Spirit. He's still present with us. He's still guiding us day by day. But Jesus is the ultimate message. Others, prophets, they, they brought a message from God. Jesus is God's message. Jesus is God saying, here I am in the flesh. <laughs> Learn of me. I'm going to tell you about me. I'm going to show you what my will is. And I'm going to give you great promises and warnings. But I'm here to do it personally. That's the difference. He's spoken to us by His Son. And He has given us the Bible, which records not only God's words spoken through the, promise, but all, through the prophets, but also four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, and the writings of those whom He authorized and inspired to record that, to explain that, to show the implications of that. So that's what we have the rest of the New Testament for. All of that's collected in this book, written down by those who were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote. God assured us that we have a reliable record of what He has spoken. It's this. It's this Bible right here. Now let's think about the implications of this for a moment, that God has spoken to us. It means God is approachable. He initiated communication with us. He invites us into a relationship with Him. So He's not like the deists or how the deists thought of God in the 18th century. Their idea was that God created the world and then He pulled back and He just let it go sort of like ceasing all his activity in the world, un uninvolved in the affairs of mankind. It's like he wound up the clock and he just lets it run and stepped away. That's not true of God. He has spoken and he still speaks. He still invites us into understanding. He invites us into relationship with him in these last days. Through his written word and through his living word, Jesus explained to us by the Holy Spirit that He gives. So God doesn't leave us in the dark about Himself. He doesn't leave us in the dark about the big questions in life. You know, like, why am I here? You know, how did all this get here? What's it all for? Where's it all going? God hasn't left us in the dark about those big answers. He says, I'll tell you the answers if you have ears to hear. And here they are. Here they are. You can rely on that. You can bank on that. I wrote it in a book. Now, why does the writer start with this reality that God has spoken to us by His Son in particular? Well, as I mentioned, these first century Christians were wavering in their commitment to Jesus. 
Maybe he's not so great after all. Maybe I made a mistake leaving behind my old life. Is it really worth it to be publicly exposed to reproach and affliction as a Christ follower? And we will have those questions too, won't we? It's why we hear of and see people leaving the faith even today. Deconstruction is not a new thing. It was happening in the first century. So how do you address that? Well, here's how the writer of Hebrews does it. It's by pointing us back to the uniqueness, the magnificence of the Son. Like if you can really see just how amazing He really is, if you can start getting some categories for all the different ways that He is your soul satisfaction, and totally worth it, then, then you're going to be able to persevere. You're not going to waver. You're not going to deny the Lord and walk away. And so that's his whole, his whole strategy, which we see here in the first four verses. The whole letter is just this one extended meditation on the greatness of Jesus Christ, that he's greater than everything. And in the first four verses, we've got seven power-packed descriptions that if we can like say yes, then that's going to put solid ground under our feet. And we won't waver. And we'll be bold for Jesus. And we're going to enjoy great experiences with him. So that's his goal in this letter. That's his goal for us this morning. Because God is speaking right now as we're going through this again. So Let's look at seven reasons that are given here to hold fast to Jesus. Seven descriptions of the Son as to why it's not a mistake to follow Him. We're going to walk through them one at a time in their order of appearance, and I hope the Lord uses it to increase our hope. Here's the first reason to hold fast to Jesus. It's because God appointed Him the heir of all things. God appointed him the heir of all things. What does that mean, heir of all things? Well, there's an obvious part of that. It means all things belong to him. <laughs> he owns everything. He owns the world and everything in it. All the resources of the nations. All the possessions that we think belong to us. They actually all belong to him. We don't actually own anything. Jesus owns it. It is His to do with what He wants. We've had two minivans that I really liked. They were both Toyota Siennas. Both were rear-ended and totaled. And what made me like become okay with that was, besides the, insur besides the insurance checks, it was knowing that those vans belong to Jesus, Jesus, and if he wants to destroy them, that's up to him. You know, maybe he's got something else for me then. But he wrecked them, so okay, we move on. <laughs> it's practical to believe that he's the heir of all things. But it's more than just the fact that he owns all physical things. Jesus possesses every, everything that we could want for salvation, for our souls. He has it all. In Colossians 2.3, it says, In Him are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. 
all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. You think you go to the university for that? Well, you can get a lot of information there, but he has the riches. <laughs> He's the fountain of wisdom and knowledge. He's got that. That's his possession. That's what we really need. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, that's what Jesus had. The, the ability to forgive sin, the, the riches of redemption, of being restored and made right with God and given a future that you can look forward to and say, yeah, the best is coming. Jesus and Jesus alone can give you that. He owns it. God has given him and appointed him to be the one that can distribute these things. And he does. He's not stingy. The son who is the heir of all things, he can split his inheritance. <laughs> and he's going to. Paul said in Romans 8, 17, we, this is talking about believers, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In some way, we don't quite see yet. There's going to be a new world. There's going to be a new heaven and earth. It's going to be completely perfect. It's, going to, it's not going to have any sin, no junk. And we are going to be co-owners. <laughs> He's going to share it all with, with us, believers in Christ. That's why we don't want to leave Him. That's why we don't want to find some other option. We don't want to waver in our hope. That's our hope. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we have it. Here's the second reason you want to hold fast to Jesus. The world was created through him. It was created through him. Verse 2, through him he created the world. God created the world through the Son. The Son is our creator. We don't necessarily think about that. Think about Jesus that way. But when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and to the creation account, you'll, you'll note that in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. The Son was a part of the us making the world and making mankind. The Son is a member of the tri-unity, the Trinity, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He created all things. John also affirmed this in his gospel about Jesus. Of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, he said, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Technically, John didn't mean that the physical person of Jesus was in the beginning with God, creating the world, because Jesus had a date of conception. Jesus had a birth date about 2,000 years ago. Jesus, the man, was not in the beginning physically, but Jesus, the Son of God, was in the beginning because He's God and man. The Son of God is eternal, and He was involved in the creation of the world. Without Him, nothing was made 
that has been made. And at a point in time, the eternal Son of God took on temporal flesh in the person of Jesus. The infinite dwelt within the finite, the timeless within the time bound. And so Jesus, as God the Son, did create the world. We might not be used to thinking of him as the creator, but he is. And that's another reason to attach yourself to him. Because it means this this Jesus has unlimited power. Unlimited power. We like superhero stories because we like to think that somebody can overcome every power, (laughs) overcome all evil, save the world, and save us. Well, Jesus is greater than all of our conceptions of superheroes. In fact, he's the only real superhero, the only one who actually can conquer the world and rescue it and reshape it and renew it and give you a future and a hope. He's the only one. He's the real one. And all of our superhero movies, what makes them good is because they're pointing in that direction. The good ones, anyway. I mean, there's some that aren't. Talk to Stephanie if you want to know which ones are good and which ones are not. (laughs) He has unlimited power. And it's that power that makes answers to our prayers possible. When we get together and pray which we will do this Friday night at Holy Fire out there in that room. When we get together and pray, the reason we're not wasting our time is because the Lord has the power to answer every prayer. Nothing will be impossible with God, is what the angel said to Mary when he said, you're going to have a baby without a man. She said, I don't think so. Well, she didn't say that. She had more faith than that. But I would have been thinking, I don't think so. He said, yeah, nothing will be impossible with God. His power is unlimited. He has, according to Romans 4.17, he's the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the Lord's power. He's no mere teacher of morality. He's the Almighty God, and His ear is open to the prayers of those who seek Him. So whatever you might ask God, no matter how impossible it seems, whatever situation you find yourself in, and you're like, I don't see a way forward here. There there are no good options. God can make options. (laughs) God will bring something out of that. God will answer. According to His wisdom, might not be what we're looking for, but He has the power to do everything to do miracles. That's a reason to hold fast to Jesus. Here's the third reason. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Radiance is brightness from a source. If you were to look directly at the sun, which I don't recommend, although although at the next solar eclipse, definitely look at it because you're not really looking at it. The corona, anyway, it's great. you got to see it. I think the next one is like in 20 years. So look at the sun then, but don't do it now. But if you did look at the sun, 
you're not really seeing the sun. You're seeing the brightness that's emanating from it. But the sun and the brightness go together. The radiance is the visible expression of the sun. So also Jesus is the visible expression of the glory of God. That is to say, when you see Jesus, when you read about his life in the Gospels, when you consider all that he said, you are seeing what God would be like if he were a human being. Because God became a human being. You are actually seeing God when you are seeing Jesus. We see him in the scriptures. The disciples got to see him in person. We still see him, though, in the record that they left us. And we see his actions. We see what he did for his 33 years. And when we see that, we're seeing God. We're seeing what God is like. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. God in his full glory is too overwhelming for any of us to see. He said to Moses, no man can see me and live. That would be too much for you. It would totally wipe you out to see me the way I am in my fullness. You couldn't do it. You couldn't handle it. But God in the flesh, God with his full glory veiled to some degree, yet radiating all of God's character and God's heart, that is a God we can see. We can see him in Jesus, the radiance of his glory, We can see in him the attributes of God himself. God in his purity, his wisdom, his love, his justice, and his compassion, and his holiness. That makes Jesus greater, more satisfying, and more soul-stirring than anything else that exists. Creation has a lot of great things to appreciate, but the creator himself is greater. In Jesus, we see God's glory. And that's the point of the fourth reason the writer gives to hold fast to Jesus. He says he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. The idea of imprint is that of a coin stamped with an image of a person on it. So our coins have George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, and we're, we look at the coin, we're supposed to think, oh, that's George Washington, that's Abraham Lincoln. Jesus is the imprint of God. That is, he's the exact reproduction of God in human form. We look at Jesus, at the descriptions of him in the gospel, and we're to think, oh, that's God. <laughs> that's what God is like. But unlike the coin that can only show limited details of the person that's, whose image is there, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. In Jesus, we see God's glory, what God is like, without any error, without any imperfection, without any confusion, with nothing added. Just 100% unadulterated godness. <laughs> That's why Jesus said to Philip in John 14:9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in John's gospel, he says, I and the Father are one. Here's the difference this should make in our concept of who God is. 
People sometimes have hard thoughts about God in general. That he's distant, something of a cruel tyrant maybe, mainly interested in punishing disobedience, things like that. People have thoughts like that about God. But people have a generally good impression, have good thoughts about Jesus. He's a healer. He reached out to the broken. He associated with sinners. He sacrificed himself for others. People like Jesus, but they don't necessarily like God. But Jesus is the exact display of God. He is not a softer version of God. He is what God has always been. Just lived out in front of us. He's the exact display of God's nature. Will God punish disobedience? Yes, He must, or else He isn't just. And if He isn't just, He's not a God that we can trust in. But is that where God's heart really is? No. How do we know? Because Jesus shows us the Father's heart. His his compassion, the patience, the self-sacrifice to save others that Jesus displayed, that is God's heart. That is the same God of the Old Testament in action. Everything Jesus did is exactly what is on God the Father's heart. Yes, Jesus spoke of repentance for sin. And Jesus warned and challenged religious pride and fake faith. Jesus warned of hell more than any other writer. But as you trace his ministry, his daily preoccupation is filled with compassion for sinners and an invitation to follow him that they may have life. John 3.17 explains Jesus' life this way. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God the Father did that. That is God the Father's heart, that the world might be saved through the Son. Yes, He will be just. Yes, there is something to be punished. But his heart is that the world may be saved, that we might see Jesus the way the writer of Hebrews does. Here's the fifth reason to hold fast to Jesus. He he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe, the universe, by the word of his power. Not only was the Son involved in creation, but he sustains it. That's what upholding is. He's, he's keeping it going by the word of his power. Like, like every moment, every millisecond, the whole thing would disintegrate if he didn't will that it continue. That's That's amazing. He's he's on site. He is in every molecule all the time, keeping it going. Another way to say it, everything and everyone owes their continued existence to God the Son. If he decided for even a moment that he didn't want something to exist, it would just completely vanish. Now that creates all sorts of questions for us. 
some of which lead people away from trusting in God or believing the Bible. Because if Jesus really is actively keeping everyone in existence, then why does he allow evil people to exist? That's a big question. How can he be loving and allow child molesters to exist? How can he allow people to have the resources, the time and energy and money to do evil things to us? That creates some difficulties in our minds. We think, well, that can't be right then. He doesn't actually sustain all things. It must mean something else. It seems easier to just say, well, he doesn't really have the power, that he doesn't really uphold the universe. But that is to deny the obvious teaching of Scripture. More than that, it denies the deity of Jesus Christ. God is the creator, and God is the sustainer of the universe, and Hebrews says that Jesus is God. So we don't have time to unravel all the questions about why God allows evil in the world, but we can say this is an encouragement to hold fast to Christ. You can trust that everything Jesus allows in a believer's life must be consistent with some ultimately wise and loving purpose. He wouldn't allow it to happen otherwise because he came to save you, not destroy you. It means that anything he doesn't want to happen will not happen. He has total control over this world. Now, if you spend a lot of time doom-scrolling, I just learned that word from Todd. I'm trying to be relevant. Doom scrolling. If you're obsessing over the latest bad news, you're feeding yourself that constantly, the picture that you're getting of this world is that it's out of control, that it's in the hands of the wicked, that it's going downhill fast, and it's going to end badly. That's not an accurate picture. The world is in Jesus' hands. He upholds it. And he is upholding it in perfect wisdom. Right now, we don't understand it all, but on the other side, it's going to make sense. For now, we can trust that the same heart that healed lepers and forgave prostitutes, the heart that is managing your life as a believer, even the hard parts of it, and that's not a contradiction. We know that every good story has its antagonist and its protagonist. There's got to be good and evil. There's got to be something to be overcome, and that's what makes the ending so beautiful, and so our lives are much like that. Only God knows where to put in the hard parts and how hard they need to be and who they happen to, but He is writing a story. It's already written, in fact, and it ends with His people with Him in joy forever as joint heirs of everything. <laughs> Those are the spoilers. <laughs> but that's the real story. Here's the sixth reason to hold fast to Jesus. He made purification for sins. He made purification for sins. This is the good news. This is the salvation 
that God sent his son into the world to accomplish. Purification for sins means the removal of guilt for our wrongdoing. Sin is like a stain that needs to be cleansed, washed away. We, we feel that when we do something that our consciences tell us was wrong, the guilt of it lingers like a big red stain on your shirt. The, the laundry, the cleaning just doesn't get it out. There's this guilt that lingers. There's this weight on our soul, this burden that we carry that we try to get rid of, but we don't really get rid of it. But Jesus can get rid of it. Jesus can bring purification. Jesus can cleanse our consciences from dead works, which we'll also read later in Hebrews. So that guilt, that, that person I neglected, that vile thing that I said, that, that indulgence in, in some besetting sin, whether it's porn or whatever it is, that, that selfishness, that laziness, that cowardice when I should have spoken up, those things stick to our conscience like a stain that won't go away. But Jesus came to purify that stain. Forgiveness. How? Well, that's what much of the letter of Hebrews is devoted to. Purification for sins is a major theme in the letter, especially chapters 9 and 10. Under the Old Covenant, under the system that these Jewish Christians were brought up in, the way that your sins were purified was by sacrificing an animal according to God's law. You, you, you transfer figuratively, symbolically, your sins onto that animal. That animal is killed in your place. You walk away, sins atoned for. You are right with God. That was how it worked under the old covenant. That's what they were used to. But as we're going to see later when we get to 9 and 10, an animal can't really atone for human sin. That was only a placeholder for the real atonement that was coming. And that atonement, the one that was coming, the one that the Son made, was His own life sacrificed for us. Our sins placed on Him. Our guilt transferred to Him. His righteousness transferred and placed on us. And him receiving the blow, receiving the sentence, receiving the penalty for what we do. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. That one, that one sacrifice to sin for sin. We'll read that about that later. Jesus is the one sacrifice to sin. He accomplished it on the cross. That's where God said, I, I put that punishment for them on you. You take the blame. You take the punishment. He was totally willing. He volunteered for this. Him and the Father agreed, this is what we're going to do. It wasn't child abuse, like some people are saying about this doctrine. No, this is the most loving thing in the world, that the Father and His Son would say, these people who have ruined themselves, you, go in their place. Take the blame. Take the punishment so that I can save them. That's good news. The way our consciences are cleansed, we are is by trusting in Jesus as the one who bore our sins on the cross. It isn't by keeping the moral laws of God, though they are good laws and they are how we are supposed to live. It isn't by doing better. 
when we realize I've blown it and trying to atone for it by more good works. None of those things work. The only thing that works is our guilt transferred unto Jesus and His righteousness transferred to us through faith in Him as the Savior. It's easy and yet hard because we have to humble ourselves and say we need that. I can't do it. I need Him. But it's God's goodness to us that He's made it come down to just that. Do you love my son and recognize what he did? And if you do, welcome to the riches. (laughs) Welcome to an amazing future. Welcome back to me, the, the fountain of living waters. It all comes down to, is your faith there or not? Or is it in this world? Here's the last reason to hold fast to Jesus. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Though he was crucified, though he died, though he was placed in a tomb, he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God. That's a declaration of his sovereign authority. A declaration of his rule as king over all. Right now, Jesus sits on God's throne as ruler over the world. That's something you can't say about angels to whom Jesus is compared. Verse 4 says, He has become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Angels are powerful beings, but they don't sit at the right hand of God. They're not the Son. And the rest of the chapter is actually an expansion on that. And so we're going to look at that next week, how Jesus is superior to angels. But we'll leave that till next week. Right now, just realize he sits on a throne as God's son and as the ruler. What are the implications of Jesus as ruler over the world? Well, one thing it means he has the authority to determine the outcome of our lives. He has the authority to pardon sin, and he has the authority to hold us responsible for it. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He has it. He has that authority. But he can also say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, which is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's from Matthew 25. He has authority to judge. He has authority to pardon. He is the king to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. But as we saw, his heart is to pardon. And he will do that for all who treasure him as the crucified and risen purifier for our sins. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to have a closing song. Let me just close with this thought as they're getting ready. The writer of Hebrews could have emphasized many things to keep Christians hopeful and unwavering in their faith during difficult times. He could have told them, well, your circumstances will get better. Better, Hold on. You won't really suffer that much. He could have told them, lay low. Take a safer, less trouble-filled path. 
could have told them, do what you can to turn the tide of a public opinion in another direction so that they like you and don't persecute you. He didn't point them to any of those things. Instead, he pointed them to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That has the power to put solid ground under your feet. That has the power to make you thrive. That has the power for you to say, it doesn't matter what happens, I have Christ. And that is satisfying. May God give that to us. Let's pray. And, um, sing about the